0: There were only about 50 buyers in Sotheby's new Bond Street auction room, many of them agents for London booksellers. There was also an autograph dealer over from Paris and, incongruously, a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. Now, he was the economist John Maynard Keynes, by then well known for denouncing the boom and bust, crazy free market economics that had led to the Wall Street crash and many crashes since. The auction was booked in for after lunch on the 13th of July, 1936, and the green bound catalogue, a colossal seven shillings and sixpence for an illustrated copy, was entitled The
1: Newton Papers. While well, John Maynard Keynes himself was more interested in art than manuscript. In fact, he'd been dragged along rather unwillingly to the sale by his brother Geoffrey. But Keynes had always been interested in Sir Isaac Newton, who, like him, had been a Cambridge mathematician, perhaps the greatest of them all. The auction started promptly at one o'clock. As it got underway, Keynes grew increasingly uncomfortable, uneasy at what he later described as the impiety of the bidders. Millions of Sir Isaac Newton's handwritten workings were being knocked down for next to nothing, and it was quickly obvious that the whole lot would go for just a few thousand pounds. Keynes began to make his own bids, and by the end, he'd secured 39 of the manuscripts, more in fact than almost anyone else.
0: It was only when he sat down to read what he'd bought that Keynes realised it was dynamite.
1: Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
0: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
1: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens.
0: On Monday the 13th of July 1936, the economist John Maynard Keynes bought 39 manuscripts at a Sotheby's auction. The sale had been advertised as the Newton Papers the title turned out to be a bit misleading. The collection was of 332 lots of the 17th century mathematician and natural philosopher Sir Isaac Newton's manuscripts. They'd been put up for sale by the Earl of Portsmouth. He'd inherited them through the marriage of an ancestor to Newton's great niece. Back in the 1870s, a previous Earl had offered all the papers of the great 17th century mathematician to Cambridge University. But the little team of scholars that had been instructed to go through them had decided that many of them were, quote, not of much interest, and so a whole chest of them had been dispatched back to the Earl. In 1936, however, the current Earl was facing ruinous death duties and it was whispered a divorce and was flogging off whatever he could, including his ancestral Hampshire pile and that old tin chest of Newton's rubbish. So it was just some papers that were not of much interest that were being sold at Sotheby's that Monday afternoon in 1936. Nobody was expecting them to pay off much of the Earl's debts. That season, most of the smart money was along at Christie's at a sale of paintings by Rubens
1: and Rembrandt. Well, Keynes collected together the manuscripts he'd won in the auction and sat down to study them. Newton's handwriting is not difficult to read, but Keynes discovered that the manuscripts, well, they seemed to be written in code full of obscure references to things like the green dragon, the doves of Diana, the scepter of Job, the caduceus of Mercury. Well, Keynes was intrigued.
0: During his lifetime, Newton is said to have made half a dozen epoch-making discoveries. He demonstrated that white light is made up of different colours. He identified and described gravity. You remember the story about the falling apple? Actually, it's not quite what it seems, which we'll come back to later. Newton also invented calculus. Or more precisely, he came up with calculus at roughly the same time as Leibniz. It's the Germans' method schoolchildren have to suffer nowadays.
1: And then, using discoveries 2 and 3, that's gravity and calculus, he came up with his famous three laws of motion. They were the basis of everything else in what's called classical mechanics. They were enough to land a man on the moon. Incredible. All these Newton explained in his two brilliant books, Principia Mathematica of 1687 and Optics of 1704. Both books went through several editions, but besides them, Newton published strangely little.
0: Looking at the manuscripts now in his hands... Keynes began to believe that what Newton had really spent his time doing during his years as a professor at Trinity College, Cambridge, was something entirely different. Keynes began to contact the other buyers of the Newton documents at the sale. After some years of intense effort, he succeeded in gathering about half of the collection, most of the rest having been bought by a syndicate and probably sold on to the States. Goodness knows where it is now.
1: Historian Daniel Kuhn has shown how, once war broke out, Keynes embarked on an exhausting schedule, shuttling backwards and forwards between London and Washington trying to negotiate lend-lease terms with the Americans for Britain's war effort. But somehow, he still found time to continue working on Newton's papers. On the 30th of November 1942, the Royal Society gave a dinner in honour of the 300th anniversary of Newton's birth, which would fall on Christmas Day that year. Well, it was all a bit low-key, given the war that was going on. But at the last minute, someone invited John Maynard Keynes to give the after-dinner speech. They'd apparently heard of his work on those strange manuscripts. Keynes' title for his speech was, quote, Newton the Man. Newton was, he said, almost entirely concerned, not in serious experiment, but in trying to read the riddle of tradition, to find meaning in cryptic verses, to imitate the alleged but largely imaginary experiments of the initiates of past centuries. What Keynes believed he discovered was that Newton was dabbling in alchemy, what we usually think of as trying to turn lead into gold.
0: Well, it wasn't an entirely new idea. It had been mentioned in a few lines in a biography written back in 1855. But the author, a Scotsman called Sir David Brewster, had quickly written the whole notion off as a few moments of Newtonian madness. Then everybody had forgotten about it. By Keynes' time, scholars referred politely to Newton's interest in chemistry and suggested that he'd bought a few alchemical books out of curiosity. The evidence Keynes now had in his hands, however, left him in no doubt that this had not been a moment of madness, nor had it been idle curiosity. Newton had spent much of his life as a practising alchemist.
1: In July 1946, the Royal Society decided to throw another party for Newton's tercentenary, this time without all those wartime restrictions. And they invited Keynes back to give his after-dinner speech, an updated version of it. Keynes prepared the manuscript, but he died in April that year, and in the end his talk was read out by his brother Geoffrey. Little Geoffrey. So it was Geoffrey Keynes who said out loud what John Maynard Keynes had been thinking. It's one of the most startling conclusions in the history of science. Geoffrey Keynes had been speaking for less than a minute when he declared, in the 18th century and since, Newton came to be thought of as the first and greatest of the modern age of scientists a rationalist, one who taught us to think on the lines of cold and untinctured reason. I don't see him in this light. I don't think that anyone who has pored over the contents of that box, which he packed up when he finally left Cambridge in 1696, can see him like that. Newton was not the first of the age of reason. He was the last of the magicians.
0: economist John Maynard Keynes bought hundreds of pages of Sir Isaac Newton's manuscripts on spec at an auction and concluded that they were in fact detailed notes on the great mathematician and scientist's reading and experiments in alchemy. He described Newton as the last
1: of the magicians. Well, ever since Keynes's extraordinary claim in 1946, there has been, as you can imagine, debate among historians about whether Keynes was right. Far from burning itself out, the debate has heated up in the last 30 years or so, and especially in the last two or three. A huge amount of extraordinary recent research has focused on Newton and on his contemporaries. The last of the magicians? Is it possible? Well, let's see if we can find out. Now, If you happen to know anything about all of this, you'll realise that we're going to have to simplify things quite a bit. Partly so that we aren't here all night and partly so that we uh, and everyone else can understand a word (laughs) of what's going going on. (laughs) But but the short answer to the question, was Newton the last of the magicians, is, well, yes. Uh, And also, no. Uh, Newton and alchemy turn out to be a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma.
0: Which is a phrase that sums it up perfectly. Although, incidentally, it was invented by Winston Churchill, speaking on the BBC on the 1st of October 1939, and he was describing
1: not Sir Isaac Newton, but the Soviet Union. But if the answer to the question is both yes and no, what are we supposed to do as historians? Well, what we do first of all is rummage through our pockets and find a coin. (laughs) Call it a heads and tails approach to doing history, which is the best way to work out a subject like this. First you argue one side and then the other. Then you draw your conclusion. So here's a
0: coin tails is no it's not true that newton was the last of the magicians heads is yes it is
1: all right here we go tails okay so let's start with no it's not true newton was not the last of the magicians whatever newton was up to in his lean-to lab at the back of (laughs) trinity college cambridge there are plenty of historians of science writing of the last 20 years who say that it wasn't really magic and you most definitely have to say that newton was not the last
0: Newton may have got his interest in chemicals and experiments from an apothecary with whom he lodged while he attended school in Grantham. His was an unhappy childhood and he hid away in books, working his way against his mother's wishes to Trinity College, Cambridge. According to his biographer, Michael White, Cambridge in 1661 was a dirty, dangerous, crime-ridden place and Newton was on the lowest rung of the student ladder, a lonely, Puritan figure whom nobody noticed much.
1: Two years into his studies, during yet another lecture on Aristotle, Newton apparently stopped taking notes and instead began writing out a list of philosophical questions, things he had decided to find out about. Of water and salt, he wrote, attraction magnetical, of the sun, stars and planets and comets, of gravity and levity.
0: There were 45 headings in all. It's an extraordinary list. Not only would it preoccupy Newton for the rest of his life. But it is a remarkable summary of the debates that preoccupied Newton's contemporaries, or at least anyone who was interested in what we should now call science. Though the word science wasn't invented until the end of the next century, and Newton would have described himself as a natural philosopher.
1: Evidently, while he was supposed to be studying Greek and the classics, Newton had been spending his time in his college library reading its collection of what was then called natural philosophy. The next year, he bought a prism at Stourbridge Fair, held just outside Cambridge, and began doing experiments on light. He also began studying mathematics. Well, so far, no sign of any magic. In
0: 1665, plague hit Cambridge, and we know what that's like now. And 22-year-old Newton escaped to his mother's farm at Woolsthorpe in Lincolnshire. But his head was already bursting with those questions he wanted to research. Remember that list? Cambridge was locked down for almost two years which should have been a warning to governments in this pandemic.
1: Uh, The one thing you learn from history is that governments never learn from history.
0: (laughs) Anyway, Newton stayed at the farm for two years and would later look back and say they were the most productive years of his life. And this is when, scribbling on the back of any bits of paper or parchment he could find, he formed the ideas that would later make him famous, especially that gravity was a universal force making objects fall to the earth And the mathematics that go to make up what we now know as calculus. He returned to Cambridge in 1666 and just three years later was elected the second ever Lucasian Professor of Mathematics, a position later held by Charles Babbage
1: and Stephen Hawking. Newton was not yet 27. So all that seems very rational and modern. But then, for the next 33 years, Newton spent most of his time not working out mathematical problems or indeed working on light or gravity. The historians of science such as William Newman, Niccolò Giacartini, Karen Figala and others all now completely agree that Newton spent them mostly doing alchemy. According to Newton's biographer Michael White, in 1669 Newton linked up with a network of alchemists in London. They could procure alchemical equipment and books for him. On his first trip he bought two pounds worth of chemicals and two furnaces. For years he then pulled over all the chemical texts he could get, furiously making notes and decoding their complexities. By 1675 he'd met up with Robert Boyle, one of the founders of the Royal Society, and as we now know, also deeply into alchemy.
0: Following Boyle, Newton began experiments with mercury, the mysterious metal that's liquid at room temperature. He then moved on to all the seven alchemist metals, mercury, lead, tin, copper, iron, silver and gold. First in acid solution, then heating them up, then in reaction with antimony, a chemical from an ore we now know as stibnite.
1: His roommate, John Wicken was brought in to help and record Newton's excitement in these experiments. Newton would forget to eat or sleep for days. On one occasion, Newton managed to set the laboratory on fire during one of his rare visits to the college chapel. Wiccan confessed that he had no idea what Newton was up to.
0: Much of Newton's alchemical experiments were summed up in two unpublished manuscripts, which we now know as Praxis and Processus, apparently written between 1693 and 1705. Together, they show him analysing every alchemical text he can get his hands on, including a number of books in French, and applying them in
1: careful laboratory practice. But once recent historians of science began to take Newton's experimental notebooks seriously, they discovered something really striking. The American historian of science William Newman's heavyweight book on Newton came out in 2019. Now, Newman has replicated many of Newton's experiments. Mm -hmm. What he confirms is, once you pierce through all the colourful language, the green dragon and all the rest of it, Newton's notes make perfect sense. We might even say they make perfect scientific sense. It's now completely clear that Sir Isaac Newton, whom we've always thought of as a great mathematician and scientist, spent much of his life as an alchemist. Over the last couple of decades, historians of science have been trying to explain why that was.
0: Well, we need to understand what alchemy was. Most of us imagine the alchemist trying to get rich quick by turning lead into gold, or to live forever by finding the so-called elixir of life. Or that they were charlatans or fools, tricked by chemical reactions they didn't understand, producing things that looked like gold, but weren't.
1: But now we know that these are just caricatures, dating back in fact to at least the 16th century and probably long before. There were, of course, as we shall see, the charlatans and the gullible. But ever since historian Francis Yeats began to explore the world of early modern so-called magic back in the 1970s, we've realised that alchemy was something altogether much more sophisticated.
0: To understand alchemy, you have to understand that what matters is what matter is. In other words, what things are made of, or as
1: Newton would have put it, how God made the world. Well, these days we think of matter as made up of molecules, which are made up of atoms, which are made up of electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks, leptons, as well as positrons, antineutrons, bosons, and goodness knows what other infinitely small particles, uh, which aren't really solid at all but are waveforms and probabilities. We now know that when these various subatomic somethings are arranged in one way they make lead and when they're arranged in another way they make gold. And in other kinds of ways they make the other 116 elements that are set out in the periodic table. Actually, if you want to make any sense of this, don't listen to us. Go read the brilliantly lucid matter, a very short introduction by my friend Jeff Cottrell.
0: Yes. Anyway, what all this shows is that theoretically the old alchemists had been correct. These subatomic particles could be rearranged so that aluminium could become iron or copper could become silver. In fact, 20 of the elements only occur in laboratories and
1: nuclear accelerators. But in all the other cases, the only way to transform one element into another would be with an unimaginable blast of energy. And we're talking about the kind of energy emitted by a supernova. An explosion of extraordinary force that takes place as a star dies. That's not something that Newton or any other alchemist could have cooked up on his stove.
0: But now let's imagine ourselves instead in Newton's world. Nobody in the 17th century knows about molecules, electrons or quarks or indeed supernova. Simplifying rather a lot, smart opinion in the 17th century was that all matter including all metals, were compounds composed of something along the lines of mercury, sulphur, salt, earth and water and their derivatives. Now, if that's what you believe, it becomes completely possible to imagine that
1: you could transmute anything into anything else. In fact, once you try to think your way into the way they were thinking in the 17th century, it's difficult to imagine anything more worth doing. What this kind of experiment is trying to do is to understand the way the world is made. It turns out that during all those years as a practising alchemist, Newton was working hard on his 45 questions of salt and water and all the rest. What the historians of science like William Newman now tell us is that doing alchemy, or what Isaac Newton's contemporaries in fact called chemistry, with a Y, not an E, was a completely rational way to discover how the world was made.
0: They knew, for example, that miners reported the way that copper, iron, silver, gold and all the other metals seemed sometimes to have grown under the earth
1: like trees or appeared as if they'd been cooked up by some kind of fermentation. Now, imagine you were in the 17th century and you were designing an experiment to understand this process. Well, what would you do? Well, It's obvious. You would try to grow or ferment metals in the laboratory to see how it was done. And that's exactly what the men we now call alchemists, I know at the time called themselves chemists, were trying to do.
0: And they were succeeding, or they thought they were. Philip Ball makes a telling point in his biography of the 16th century experimenter we know as Paracelsus. If, writes Ball, you don't have the advantage of modern science so that you know what gold actually is, then anything that looks like, feels like and behaves like gold, well, is gold. So even if we now know that what alchemists were often doing was nothing more than plating lead or iron with silver or gold, so far as they were concerned, they were making silver or gold. If you want to see the kind of thing they observed and why they kept on with it, go and find William Newman on YouTube giving a lecture called Why Newton Believed in Alchemy and replicating some of Newton's experiments and you'll believe the evidence of your own eyes.
1: At the heart of the process was the search for whatever it was that made these transmutations or fermentations possible. It was usually thought to be a powder or a rock of some kind, whatever it was that was producing the metals miners found underground. It came commonly to be known as the philosopher's stone. Philosophers as in natural philosophers. Ah, so the natural philosopher's stone. The natural philosopher's stone. That makes much more sense. J.K. Rowling didn't invent the philosopher's stone for Harry Potter. It was a substance that researchers tried to discover, and some said they believed they had found for hundreds of years. Something that would explain how metals, in fact all matter, came to be.
0: As chemists like Newton used to joke, this was no joke. It was certainly not a way to get rich. It was a way to spend years of your life and a very great deal of your money on materials and equipment in hot and stinking and dangerous laboratories, trying to understand processes that went on in front of your eyes, but for which you could only imagine
1: explanations. And if gold held a special place for these chemists, it wasn't because they believed they could make enough to get rich. It was because gold appeared to be the one thing that never decayed, never corroded and never turned into anything else. Pure gold appeared to be the purest substance on earth. So, if you successfully unlocked the secret of transmuting one metal into another, a process that was called chrysopia, the proof would be that you would end up with pure gold.
0: Newton spent many years studying and annotating alchemical books. It shows, as historian Niccolo Giucardini writes quotes, without a shred of doubt, that Newton was searching for a recipe for making gold but now it comes as rather less of a shock. This, say the historians of science, wasn't magic. According to them, Newton was trying to work out how God made the world. It was a perfectly reasonable way to spend an afternoon, or indeed a lifetime.
1: And the next thing that historians of science have been discovering is that it wasn't just Newton who was up to all this.
0: John Maynard Keynes studied Sir Isaac Newton's papers and concluded that he had spent many years practising alchemy. Newton, he wrote, was the last of the
1: magicians. But argue some historians of science, Keynes was wrong. Newton wasn't the last of the magicians. What he was doing wasn't magic. It was perfectly sensible experimental research on the nature of matter. And what we now know is that Newton was certainly not the last. In fact, it's becoming clear that the practice of alchemy, or what we should now more properly call chemistry, was extremely common in Newton's time.
0: Newton's distinguished fellow Royal Society fellows, Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke, were both deeply engaged in chemistry, and Newton corresponded with them both, especially Boyle, about what they were finding. Historian Anna-Marie Roos has shown that Robert Plott, who died in 1696 and was the first professor of chemistry at Oxford and was secretary of the Royal Society, also spent much of his time in Chrysopia, the transmutation of metals. He was working, in fact, for the backing of wealthy commercial interests, exactly like Big Pharma in Oxford
1: today, to whom we are very grateful. Alchemy was also being studied and even for a short time officially taught at Harvard, but the best known centre for alchemy was Vienna, the court of Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor, who controlled most of what's now Germany and Austria. Historian Pamela Smith has argued that alchemy in fact became very important at the emperor's court because it was seen as a sign of his wealth and power. Quote, redolent with illusion, allusion and symbolism, alchemy became the quintessential Leopoldine activity.
0: Yes, well, in July 1675, one of Leopold's courtiers, Johann Joachim Becker, staged a public spectacle in which he transformed a lead medallion six and a half centimetres across into silver. It still exists. It's in the British Museum. It has an inscription that declares proudly that Becker transmuted it Arte Alchimica to the alchemist's art. But that was nothing. On the Feast of St. Leopold in 1677, two years later, a bohemian friar, Wenceslas Zeiler, transformed a huge silver medallion into gold. It was more than 37 centimetres across and weighed 7 kilos. It's now in the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna.
1: Actually, chemical analysis in the 1930s discovered that the silver of Siler's huge medallion was in reality an alloy of silver and gold. And when he dipped it in nitric acid, the silver formed silver nitrate and left the gold behind. So we now know, which perhaps Brother Wenceslas didn't, that his Mm. transmutation was an illusion. But in 1677, you would have thought that he had made gold in front of your eyes. If you want to see the effect, Professor Newman repeats the trick during his YouTube lecture, although on a somewhat less ambitious scale.
0: But even if these well-known Viennese showpieces were tricks, other alchemy was going on in Europe that was, like Newton's beyond all doubt, completely serious. American historian Lawrence Princip has written an excellent and readable book about the alchemists of Newton's time in France. In fact, the French Academy Royale and Newton's English Royal Society kept in close touch about what everyone was doing. And as we saw,
1: Newton had his own collection of French alchemical texts. We're particularly well informed by the French alchemists. Not only did they, like Newton, keep detailed lab notes, but unlike him, they published dozens of papers on what they were doing. Princip's book, which came out in 2020, is mainly a biography of Newton's slightly older contemporary Wilhelm Homburg, the most distinguished French chemist in his day. Actually, he was Batavian, but he spent much of his life in Paris. He died in 1715, just 12 years before Newton. Princip shows that Homburg was preoccupied throughout his life with the philosopher's stone and transmuting metals into one another. He shows beyond doubt that Homburg wasn't some quack shaman, but a very precise, systematic technician, keeping meticulous records of his experiments, a pioneer, in fact, in measuring the exact weights of his materials before and after each stage of the process.
0: And while Newton laboured away in his lean-to in Cambridge, Homburg had the best laboratory in the world. It was situated within the French king Louis XIV's extravagant palace at Versailles. There, Homburg worked alongside the king's own nephew, Philippe-Duc d'Orléans, who rolled up his sleeves and assisted the great chemist in his experiments. Homburg even moved into chambers nearby. In their lab, Homburg and the Duke had an enormous lens... Known as the Chernhaus lens, which they used to concentrate the sun's light and direct it at chemicals they wanted to transform. It was the most expensive piece of laboratory equipment in the world, the equivalent perhaps of the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Homburg had a theory that light was a key component of the making of matter.
1: The laboratory also had a secret inner room, uh-huh. and it was here that they did the most exciting of their experiments. In notebooks that Princip has only recently discovered, there's an entry recording a visit, apparently in the early years of the 18th century, by two of the Duke's friends. The entry says this, The Conde de Noce and the Chevalier de Bethune have said that they saw the transmutation of mercury into gold performed once in the interior laboratory of the Palais Royal.
0: And Homburg's own records show that in the early 1690s, he believed he actually had turned silver into gold. And this wasn't just some cheap trick. It took this meticulous chemist three days of hard labour and he could only make half a gram, not a way to get rich. This game, he wrote with obvious feeling in his notebook, is not worth the candle. But to his own satisfaction,
1: he had proved that it was possible. For Homburg, transmuting metals was the centrepiece of a theory about how everything was made. What's even more remarkable is that Lawrence's princip produces clear evidence that the French went on practising Chrysopia transmuting metals long after Homburg's death in 1715, in fact right on into the 1760s. More than that, he shows that French interests in the transmutation of metals grew in that time and that the Germans went on much later still. This he argues was neither magic nor madness. It wasn't stuck in some loop of failure. These 18th century academics meticulously recorded their successes and failures and passed on their expertise. Over generations, they built an interpretation of matter based on very precise experimental methodology. It was so successful that it occupied many of Europe's top minds for many decades.
0: Now, it used always to be said that all this nonsense stopped when modern chemistry was invented in fact, by a Frenchman, Antoine Lavoisier, starting with his revolutionary experiments with oxygen and combustion. But here, Princip has another remarkable story to tell.
1: We now know that Newton's contemporaries across Europe went on practising alchemy or what they called chemistry long after his death in 1727. In Paris, members of the Academy Royale, for example, did alchemical experiments with a massive lens known as the Schoenhaus lens, which had been first used by chemist Wilhelm Homburg at the turn of the century. During the 1750s, the lens fell into disuse and was packed away in the storerooms of the Academy Royale. But in 1772, they dusted it off and set it up again in a specially constructed wooden shed on the banks of the Seine. Officially, the story was that they were going to do experiments on diamonds, but in fact, in August, September and October of 1772, in a series of experiments behind the walls of the shed, they turned the lens onto a series of metals, including gold and silver, and they set about checking on Homburg's alchemical results from 60 years before, and they confirmed exactly what he'd discovered.
0: Now, this is part of a much more complicated story. But the important thing is not so much the results of the alchemical experiments in the Paris shed on the River Seine, but the small team of four or five scientists who did the experiment. One of them was a French nobleman called, if you guessed, Antoine Lavoisier. And it was on the basis of this series of experiments, which he continued the following spring, that Lavoisier came up with his theory of combustion and the role of oxygen the very discoveries that are traditionally supposed to be the birth of modern chemistry. Historian Lawrence Principe concludes, therefore, that there never was a revolution in chemistry, just a quiet handover, a transmutation, if you like, which changed alchemy into chemistry in a shed on the banks of the River Seine. The two were, in fact, the same thing.
1: Lavoisier is traditionally also supposed to have come up with our modern understanding of what we non-scientists might now call chemical reactions, how one chemical combines with another. But historian of science William Newman has shown that Boyle, Newton and other chemists have been working on exactly this idea 70, 80, even 100 years before Lavoisier in the course of their alchemical experiments. Newton in turn, and Boyle too, were basing their work on that of George Starkey, an American alchemist who'd been working on these ideas all the way back into the 1650s.
0: Historian Hjalmar Force has also shown that Lavoisier's epoch-making definition of certain substances as elements was actually based on ideas that had been progressing and developing for decades among miners who were digging for metals, exactly the same men who'd been working with the alchemists.
1: What all this tells us, therefore, is that Lavoisier's discoveries weren't a chemical revolution, but an evolution. And it's a pattern you find the whole time in history. If you'd had a history cafe 50 years ago, the chances are that you'd find a top table with the so-called VIPs at a seat. The kind of people John Maynard Keynes called the first and greatest. You know, Winston Churchill. Duke Duke Wellington. Oliver Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell. Isaac Newton. Antoine Lavoisier. These were the men, always men, who supposedly made history happen.
0: But since then, the furniture at the History Café has all been rearranged. A few old and young fogies and government ministers still have their heads buried in the dust of long-forgotten school history lessons. They still want to believe that a few great individuals made history happen. But it's hopelessly out of date now. For decades we've been working through the enormous bulk of historical documents that keeps on turning up and we keep discovering, beyond all doubt, that things never work like that. Great changes always turn out to have long, slow origins. So-called great men always turn out to be standing on the shoulders of many, many others.
1: So Isaac Newton was just one of many men who were working on what he would have called chemistry and we might now call alchemy, as medieval understandings of the world evolved slowly and surely into what we would now call science. According to historians of science, Newton was not the last of the magicians. He wasn't trying to perform magic. He was simply doing what we should nowadays call chemistry. And he certainly wasn't the last.
0: So does this mean that there's nothing to see here? Well, not necessarily. As you remember, there are two sides to this coin. If tails says Newton was not the last of the magicians, we also have to consider Heads
1: that says, yes, he was. Which we'll do next time at the History Cafe, as well as having a look at that story about the apple. <laughs> For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us, and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on
0: social media at History Cafe Pod.